So this presentation is on oncological emergencies. And we're going to talk about conditions such as hyperleukocytosis, tumor lysis syndrome, uh, SVC syndrome, spinal cord compression, septic shock. We've already discussed DIC and anaphylaxis in previous lectures, but they are also complications or conditions that you can have with oncological emergencies. So the first thing we want to do is recognize um, that the patient has some abnormal lab data and physical assessments. These emergencies often um, are identified as most common emergencies that we'll see, um, but there may be other complications that you may find when caring for patients with, um, with cancer. We also want to implement interventions as soon as we can to help improve the quality of life. Um, many of these emergencies can be life-threatening, um, but they often relate to three basic things, either a metabolic or hormonal disorder, uh, there's some type of obstruction or pressure, or they can have some changes within their um, cell line, so they can have some type of cytopenias. Patients, uh, so let's talk first about hyperleukocytosis. This is when you have an increase in your white blood cell count. Generally, it's around 100,000 or greater. And what many of the malignancies or some of the malignancies that we see can cause a rapid um, cellular growth in the white blood cell count. And what this can do is it actually makes the blood very more viscous. It increases their um, chances of having complications such as uh, strokes. So we have to be very uh, careful when evaluating patient, especially someone who's coming in for a new uh, diagnosis or someone who's getting chemotherapy for the first time. With some of that cell destruction or some of the cell changes, we can have issues with that. So our presentation typically has tachypnea, dyspnea, cyanosis, blurred vision. They can have papilledema. They can have confusion, changes in, uh, uh, changes in their mental status, stupor, and ataxia. Some of the complications we see with hyperleukocytosis is bleeding, um, specifically intracranial bleeding, metabolic disturbances, renal failure, or even death. We're going to treat it by giving them fluid hydration. So we will give them a fair amount of fluid. And often when these patients come in for treatments and therapies, they have some type of hydration therapy. But if we have identified that there's an elevation in the white blood cell count, um, we'll give them fluids uh, around three liters per meter square per day. We want to make sure they have adequate urine output to let us know that they are hydrated. So we're looking for urine outputs about one to two cc's per kilo per hour. We can put them on medications such as allopurinol, respiracase. We can treat ele electrolyte abnormalities. Um, there is some controversy of over giving them leukophoresis, but this practice is still offered, or they can get an exchange transfusion where you're exchanging out their blood volume for whole blood. Um, and again, these patients are going to need blood product support and chemotherapy. So often these patients, we need to treat the underlying cause. Next, we'll talk about tumor lysis syndrome. Um, here, this usually occurs when the patient is initially going under chemotherapy. Very common to see if it happens in the first round. But nowadays, it's less commonly seen because we're doing pre-medicated um, uh, pre treatments to try to prevent this as much as possible. Um, but the definition of tumor lysis syndrome, you have a rapid breakdown of malignant cells um, that basically are inadequate for your renal function. So you have an increase in your uric acid, usually greater than eight milligrams per deciliter. You have an increase in your potassium. 
because here we have cell breakdown that's occurring um, and inside the cells there's a fair amount of potassium so it's potassium levels greater than six MEQs per uh, milliliter your phosphate will also go up um, causing <clears throat> causing your calcium to go down because they have an inverse relationship so you have hyperuric acid uh, hyperuric acidemia hyperkalemia hyperphosphatemia and hypocalcemia now this diagram does a, a pretty decent job on explaining them what happens so typically patients diagnosed with cancer they have their malignancy they start chemotherapy and we start cellular breakdown and usually within the first five days post that initiation of chemotherapy we have breakdown of the cellular components so breakdown of the dna can lead to hyper uricemia or increase in their uric acid which directly affects uh, renal function you have a breakdown in your protein so you have this breakdown of phosphates and calcium or this increase in phosphates because of that protein breakdown which then causes your calcium to drop because of that inverse relationship and then of course with the cell destruction we're also getting break you know release of potassium into the bloodstream which can have both neuro neurotoxic issues as well as cardiac uh, cardiac toxic toxicity and dysrhythmias so the cancers that are commonly associated with tumor lysis syndrome are your Burkett's lymphoma or your B-cell leukemias, um, your T-cell leukemias, or any leukemia that has a white blood cell greater than 100,000. So they also have this condition of hyperleukocytosis. Um, and neuroblastoma, although rare, can, has also been known to cause tumor lysis syndrome. Your, their presentation, usually it's a very rapid onset. Um, and you can imagine these patients may have uh, cardiovascular changes um, on their uh, rhythm strips. They can have abdominal pain with cramping and uh, vomiting. They can develop ascites. Um, they can have weakness, altered mental status, or seizures. Our plan is to evaluate, usually when we start chemotherapy on these patients, especially those that were concerned that there might be a higher risk or incidence of tumor lysis syndrome, they'll send off daily uh, pre chemotherapy, and regular lab work to assess for your uric acid, your phosphorus, your calcium, and your potassium. So usually you get a CMP Megan Foss with a uric acid. And then we'll monitor those very closely. So as, as the bedside provider caring for these patients, these are things that you're going to want to know if someone's being inducted or if they're on um, a new type of chemotherapy for, especially for large tumors or tumors that are um, going to require a lot of cell breakdown. Um, their IV hydration, again, you're going to give them um, larger volumes. And many of the protocols that we do now when we're giving patients chemotherapy require a fair amount of fluid hydration before the chemo agents are given. So the patient's already tanked up ahead of time. And then they're given medications such as allopurinol to help reduce the uric acid. And then the respiracase, which is kind of like a rescue drug to also help um, eliminate some of the uric acid and it also helps alkalinize their urine. So we can also put them on bicarb if, if there's even further concern. And these patients, again, you want to correct their electrolytes. And in some cases, they may even require dialysis. Next, we'll talk about septic shock. <clears throat> now, this is a systemic response to um, microorganisms, that, um, especially those that release endotoxins into the bloodstream. And this can lead to a decrease in perfusion, cellular hypoxia, and cell death. The ones that we're most concerned with with our, our cancer patients are our gram-negative microorganisms, um, often specifically Pseudomonas is one that we're really concerned about. And the patients that are at highest risk are those that have um, an uh, absolute neutrophil count of less than 100, or they have a, a history of prolonged neutropenia, um, anyone being given immunosuppression or someone that's already been 
immunosuppressed with therapies. Those patients that have um, splenectomies, um, small or younger infants who already don't have a very um, strong, mature uh, immune system, anyone with devices, so if they have mechanical valves or mechanical devices that are in implanted, um, they're at higher risk. And those children with poor skin integrity, especially those with mucositis, are at a high risk as well. I put together a little chart on the differences between sepsis and septic shock. In sepsis, you have someone who has, you know, either a very low temperature or elevated temperature, less than 36, greater than 38 degrees Celsius. Um, they can have tachypnea tachycardia. With septic shock, their blood pressures usually are unstable or they have a degree of hypotension that has been unresponsive to fluid management. For your physical changes, often patients in sepsis will be warm, flushed. They'll have, they usually are weak and tired with some malaise, and they generally do have some pretty decent urine output. In septic shock, they're usually more cold, clammy. They can start developing these fluid shifts when you start hearing crackles in their lungs, and they start developing hypoxia on on their on their lab work. And then, of course, they may have a decreased urine output that may lead to no urine output. And then with their mental status changes, you know, often there's maybe some minor confusions and restlessness with your septic patient, but those that are in septic shock may have profound confusion, anxiety, changes in levels of consciousness, or even delirium. From this, uh, this chart here, we look at the, uh, all the different systems that are affected with sepsis and septic shock. So again, here with your cardiovascular system, you can have hypotension, you can have mottled skin, uh, cool, clammy skin, uh, poor capillary refill. When we check their labs, you're gonna have an increase in lactate levels. So now when we have patients that are septic, right? When we worry about any type of shock, we worry about meeting oxygen tissue demands or the tissue oxygen demands. And in patients with shock, their metabolic or their metabolism often tends to go through the roof. So we don't, they can't even breathe fast enough or take in enough oxygen to meet these demands. And that's why at the cellular level, often they'll go there, the, the, instead of, you know, getting oxygen delivered to those tissues, they undergo anaerobic respiration. And that's when they start seeing this increase in lactic acid. They have, um, they can have altered cardio, cardiovascular changes, so they can have changes in their echocardiogram with poor cardiac output. In their liver, they, you could see elevated um, bilies or elevated liver enzymes. For your renal system, we've already talked about some of the decreasing urine output, some changes in the BUN and creatinine, as well as some other biomarkers. And then for your neurological system, you have your changes in mental status. You can have hypox hypoxemia. Um, you can have a drop in the PF ratio. Um, and then you can also have, um, low platelet counts. You can develop DIC and you may have symptoms of, um, petechiae, which may indicate that you're in, or the patient is in DIC. Your plan is essentially symptom management. So one of the first things you, you want to do if someone's in septic shock, make sure that they, they make sure that they are on the appropriate antibiotic to treat. In the initial phases, when we're concerned with someone with septic shock and we don't have confirmed cultures, what we'll do is we'll start them on a broad spectrum antibiotic. Many times that's vancomycin because it covers MRSA very well. Um, and we'll put them on cefepime because that is a, is a very good fourth generation cephalosporin that covers gram negative, specifically covering pseudomonas. Um, and then oftentimes they may put them on antifungals. Um, if they're worried about GI issues too, they may place them on, um, uh, medications such as flagyl. Um, again, we want to make sure our lab work and our cultures are done quickly. We want to make sure our antibiotics are ordered promptly. 
usually want to get those antibiotics in within the first hour of identifying that the patient is in septic shock. We want to um, treat their blood pressures, right? So again, you're going to go back to your ABCs. So if they're having trouble breathing, you're going to, you know, assist it in their airway. And if they need help breathing, you'll put them on a ventilator or provide the support that they need. If their circulation is an issue, you can start off with fluid resuscitation. Oftentimes you may need to move on to a vasoactive medication that can help increase their blood pressure. Those that are in warm shock, you're going to, you know, give them, um, uh, norepinephrine. And if they're in cold shock, you're going to give them epinephrine. And then, um, for the patient that doesn't have, or has very poor renal function, you may consider putting them on uh, CVVH, um, to help clear some of that fluid and some of those, you know, correct some of those electrolytes. And then you want to have good monitoring of x-rays and you want to do further investigation to identify where the sepsis may be coming from so that you can treat it again appropriately. These patients will be checking their labs quite frequently throughout the day and you want to check your, your cultures regularly until you start getting negative cultures and you're treating them appropriately on the right antibiotics. Next, we have spinal cord compression. And again, this is a, a neurological emergency. It's not generally life-threatening, but you do want to preserve as much neurological function as possible. And the people that you're most concerned with are those that have a primary spinal cord tumor, anyone with neuroblastoma, lymphoma, or metastatic uh, sarcoma. The presentation, usually the, there's pain involved. It could be local, referred, or diffuse. Um, they generally have motor and sensory deficits. So with the motor deficits, they'll have weaknesses, ataxia. They may be hypotonic or hyporeflexive, and they may even develop some paralysis or atrophy of the musculature. And then for sensory, they can have bowel bladder dysfunction, loss of pain, sensation, or paresthesias. Our plan for these patients is a very good neuro exam to identify that there are changes. Um, being hypervigilant, making sure that if you have someone with these type of conditions coming in, that you are doing regular, thorough uh, neuro exams, where you know, they may require an MRI to determine if there's an increased compression on the spinal cord from the tumor, depending on the location and, and the size of the tumor. Um, we can offer them steroids to help reduce some of the swelling or edema that may be um, around or near the tumor. Um, often, sometimes we can even shrink the tumor size um, with uh, steroids. And then, of course, you want to treat the underlying cancer, whether that be through chemotherapy or through surgical decompression. Next, we have uh, superior, vena canis, superior vena cava syndrome. Now, if you work in cardiac ICUs or cardiac centers, often we see supervena cava syndrome with patients that have had a Glenn procedure or where the Glenn has become narrowed, and now we have venous congestion in the head. You can also develop a superior vena cava syndrome with uh, uh, cancer patients, and usually there's a compression on the uh, superior vena cava from the tumor or even from you know enlarged lymph nodes um, in the area. And what that does is it causes a, a distal congestion. So usually if it's in the superior vena cava, so anything above the shoulders is going to have this um, congestive look or their faces will look very full. Often they look pretty ruddy. Um, and usually you see uh, in children, smaller children, especially infants, you can see an increase in the in the size of the head. So when you do your um, head circumferences, you may notice that there's increases there or widening of the sutures. Um, the risk factors are going to be tumors that are anterior mediastinal tumors um, or if it's anything that's involving the mediastinal lymph nodes. Um, and the common diseases would be Hodgkin's disease. Um, ALL, thoracic neuroblastoma, or germ cell tumors. 
Um, they can also cause a significant airway obstruction. So often these patients, you really <clears throat> have to be concerned when you're starting induction on them if there's going to be a problem with their airway. And usually they get admitted to the ICU because as this tumor continues to grow, it can it could place more and more compression onto the airways. And you also worry about thrombosis. Their presentation is usually there's a physical swelling or congestion of the face and the head. They can have cough, a cough, dyspnea, difficulty breathing when lying down, strider, wheezing, anxiety, or cyanosis. Our plan is to provide symptom management. Often if, if they develop an SVC syndrome, really the only option to fix it is to fix the problem. And that's if they have a tumor there, that tumor needs to be debulked either through steroid therapy or through surgical debulk, decompression. Um, or they, they, um, they, um, it's really, it's really the only thing we can offer for those patients. And then you want to provide good symptom management. So if there's, you know, if they're uncomfortable, um, provide, you know, comfort care as well as identifying the cause. All right. So that finishes this uh, presentation. Um, I hope you enjoyed it and let me know if you have any questions or comments.